This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Today's topic is a survivor's guide to architecture school. This is the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Landon Williams. And together, we're going to be talking about College Architecture Studio. If you could go back and advise your 18-year-old self, right as you started architecture school, what would you say to that person? I was an idiot back then. <laughs> I probably wouldn't listen to my future self, so you need to think about that as well. I would take—I guess I would tell myself to not take everything so seriously. I would kind of loosen up a little bit more your first year because everything is sort of very, uh, you know, everything's very formative. You don't know absolutely everything, so. You don't? That's shocking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as an eight, like, a, what is he, 17 or 18, you think you know everything. I, I mean, I thought I did. I did. I was, a, I was, I was smarter back then, <laughs> according to my past self, probably. You don't think you'd listen to yourself? I don't your, think so. You would? I totally would. I would. It's like hearing something from your parent. You know, you're like, okay, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Sure thing, <laughs> ma. That's not true at future all. Future Landon. It's you, though. Yeah, but what what has your future self been tainted what if, by? What if you look rough? Right? Like future then I would you, trust, <laughs> trust them less. Yeah, future you shows up and you're like, man, you're looking rough. I got some advice to tell you. And you're like, I'm not taking it. Uh, you don't. <laughs> nope. Okay, so I want to talk about the studio a little bit. Okay, yeah. I've written a couple blog posts about studio and school from a different, a few different perspectives. The one I want to start off with is working in studio versus working from your apartment. Okay, mm -hmm. so I want to talk a little bit about the studio as like a physical space, a place where you go and you work. You have classes and then you do work, mm -hmm. which I don't necessarily think it's still the same way as now as it was when I was in school. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I don't want this to be old timer syndrome. Oh, these youngins. There are things that I think that are better then than they seem to be now. I mean, I've seen mm -hmm. evidence of why it was better before. Um, however, since we didn't use computers ever, I mean, I got through the entirety of my architecture school experience without using a computer in any of my design studios. So what happened is you would sit in class and, you know, in the studio, you'd have class, you'd work up there. And when you didn't go home and work, because we had, we're drawing. I mean, we had big tables we had to use and nobody had giant tables in their apartment. Right. And it seems like now a lot of students do work on their laptops. And so they leave the building mm, and yep. they can do a big chunk of that work off site. Yeah. I think some of the mediums have changed. So you're not only, being, hopefully you're still de dealing with the sort of physical medium when you begin school and then, you know, but there's still sort of digital portion, which is very, you know, transferable. So you can work on the digital side in studio or at your, your apartment or house or dorm, whatever, whichever it is. Well, you know, the thing that I, I'll tell you what I don't like about that mm -hmm. is that the, the looking back on it now, you know, not as a, a, a seasoned veteran, but just if I look back at my experience in school, the thing that stands out at me the most now that I'm two decades plus removed is not the head down drawing a line on a piece of paper for hours on end. It's the conversations I had with my fellow classmates. It's seeing what they were doing. It was having the conversations where you just like, I've been drawing for two hours. I need to walk around. I'm tired. My back hurts. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go look and see what, you know, my friend Bill's got working on. Take a look at his model. Yeah. And make fun of it. 
Well, no. no. <laughs> I don't know what kind of friend you were. <laughs> you know, you poke fun and make fun. You know, not not like a, you know, you're not downtrodding the guy. You're just kind of like poke fun at him. <laughs> I wasn't that guy. You know, like friendly fun. fun. <laughs> okay. Maybe the difference is, is I would have, so we would ask people over to our desk to do like a, a desk critique, right? Like your friends. Yeah. It wasn't just the professor. You'd say, hey, yeah, yeah. Jill, come over and take a look and tell me what you think. And you'd kind of talk through what you were doing and they'd say, yeah, I get it, or I don't get it, or what if you did this, or does that actually work, or does that even make sense, or you know, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And it was there was some reciprocity that went on with that process. You ask me, that means you know, if if you come to my desk, I'm going to go to your desk, and we kind of are co-conspirators. But it's a whole room yeah. full of conspirators that are trying to like help each other. Yeah, sometimes it's a lot easier to explain what you're doing to a, someone at your sort of peer level before you go and try to explain it, you know, to your professor or to a larger group of students, you know, you're just explaining to your friend in studio. And so that can help you build your ideas. Well, you need to be able to articulate it. That's kind of yeah. a really important step in this whole kind of educational process. But so one of the posts I wrote had to do with the actual, like, here's a picture of an architect's desk. Mm-hmm. And it was from the professional standpoint, it was actually from working architects. And they sent me pictures of their desk and I put them on the website. And it was kind of okay. interesting to take a look at. Well, I thought I'd do the same thing with students. You know, with the idea, it's going to be their desk up at studio. And I know what my desk in studio looked like. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Bombshell. So I had students send me pictures of their work environments. Okay. And I'll bet you nine out of every 10 I received was like, it had that couch with like a glass table, what? a coffee table. So not in studio. No. It was their quote unquote studio. Yeah. It was their dining room or their living room in their apartment. Interesting. Like almost every single one of them. And I was kind of. Depressed might be an overstatement of how I felt, but I thought, God, they're really missing out on my reflecting back on time in school, what I thought was the best part of the whole studio experience. Yeah, I sometimes even enjoyed, you know, maybe if my project wasn't that great, if there were two people in other studios, I was just a lot love going checking out what like how much progress they had made and what they were, you know, how they're developing their ideas. And there were those people, a few people in at least my class that would come in at the end of the semester with their project and you had no idea where it came from. It's sort of dropped in from the sky and you're like, they didn't really explain it very well. And it, there was no ideas that supported it. And you couldn't see the pro they didn't have a process they were bringing into their right. um, project, which I think is a big part of it. How do you iterate your project along? Well, I think that speaks a little bit. So if you're in architecture school now, or if you're like me and that was a long time ago and you're reflecting back, mm-hmm. you know, some of the studios that you'll take will have, you know, maybe one project that's the entire semester. Yeah. Or, yeah. which I actually never had that. I never had a design studio where I, well, that's not true. There was one semester and it was called our sound building studio where we took one project and we kind of took it through what our idea of construction drawings were. Okay. Right? Yeah. But for the most part, every design studio I ever had, had two or three or four projects that we took on within a semester. Yeah. Same right? Here. So they had these like not super long arcs. And so most of the time, um, the professor would come in, they'd say a few words, and they'd kind of leave. You know, there was like a couple of classes where the professor's there the whole time and we're having, you know, a conversation about what the project Mm -hmm. is, what the type is, you know, how do we do it? And then there'd be those days when the professor would walk from desk to desk to look at your progress and guide you. At your desk, yeah. Yeah. But I would bet probably 80% of my time spent at my desk in architecture studio, there was no professor in the room. Hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just me working. And if I wanted to, 
have a conversation or talk about what I was doing or get some feedback. It was from my classmates. Yeah. And, and it really kind of being that aware of what everyone else is doing, both in terms of the skill that they're showing in terms of like, wow, that guy, that person's drawings look really good. That person's mm-hmm. model looks better than mine. It forced you to kind of really understand where you were compared to your other classmates. And it, it kind of fed on itself. So if that person was performing at an 80% level, you'd see it and you are at least going to go, well, I'm going to do 82%. Yeah. <laughs> Next thing you know, that guy sees you're at 82 and he's going to bump up to 84 and then she's going to bump up to 80. Yeah. yeah. There's some inherent, I think, competition, competitive nature that everyone has. And so you feed up. I mean, it's, it's kind of like your doggy dog, but at the same time, it's hopefully collaborative. You yeah. Know, they're doing something you can like a technique, maybe for a drawing, you kind of steal a little bit, maybe here and there. And you kind of build your own kind of arsenal of the way you do things or express mediums, I guess. You know, it's interesting that you put it kind of in that direction because mm-hmm. since you're just right out of school, you know, you look at it and describe it as a competitive environment. Mm-hmm. For yeah. me, reflecting back on it, I see it as I didn't want my work to stand out as being subpar. Yeah. So it wasn't, I want to do better than you. It's that I don't want to be embarrassed by being worse than somebody else. <laughs> right. And maybe that just might be in my head. Like that's just my personality yeah. type. Motivation not to be bad. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you don't want to, cause everyone has to pin their work up. Right. Mm-hmm. And you don't want someone to walk in and skim everything. And all of a sudden it's like, you're the one that's got a baked potato on the wall when everyone yeah. else has got beautiful buildings. Yeah. Okay. Right? Terrible. At least for me, that's a big part of my motivation. It mm-hmm. wasn't school. Now, I don't really worry about what other people are doing as much. I do what I want to do. And, I, you know, I set my own bars. So in your studio did – okay, so in our studio, we, we had a lot of square footage per for every student. It yeah. wasn't – I was talking to somebody about this the other day. So, like, in our office space, that's we had more space than that for the same number of people. So I would say – for. Let me start over. In my studio, I was in college. I bet I had a footprint just for me that was big enough to have two full-size drawing tables, a bookshelf, and a couch Wow! for me. That's like a little apartment there. Well, I spent enough time up there. That was the intention. Yeah. I'd, ha- I'd have like, you know, and the only thing I really ever kept up there, because I did have a jam box once, but somebody stole my jam box. What? Yeah. I made, I was, oh I was the king of mixtapes. I made a lot of mixtapes. Wow. And is that was that your title in studio? Everyone has like a thing in studio. Like we always had the one guy who had the music, one person who had the fridge. You always want to be that guy's guy's friend because you know he let, let you, put, you let you put your sandwiches in there, your <laughs> leftover Chinese from two nights ago. Wow, that is nice. Leftover yeah, you Chinese. Were, you were food? the king if you were the one with the fridge. The hardest thing was figure out how to get it plugged in because sometimes you had to daisy chain a bunch of uh, one of those little like outlets, uh, outlets together. Yeah, what are those extension little? cords. No extension cord, like the ones that have like multiple outlets in it. And it's like that only runs like two feet. A plug mold. Yeah, those whatever. things. But sometimes you have the daisy chain, like a three bunch. of those together. And then the, <laughs> there was always a fire, not a fire marshal, but there was a person who checked all the safety stuff in studio, which everyone hated because they always like. Was it another student? No, it was like some <laughs> person that had to be hired by the college in order to maintain a level of fire safety in the building because there's, you know, a lot of flammable objects in a studio environment. But anyway, he'd always catch that person with like daisy chain things like, what are you doing, son? <laughs> don't, don't do this again. I'm going to come back tomorrow. This better not be here. And they would just yeah. move it. Yeah, they'd move it. I don't remember car. anybody having a, a refrigerator 
Okay. But I was definitely the music guy. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I definitely played the music and, um, you know what? And I, and, and there were times when people would just put on their headphones cause they didn't want to listen to, you know, whatever I was playing. Okay. Yeah. But not because yeah. that was not okay. If we had 15, 12 to 15 people in a class, mm-hmm. there might be five people that put on headphones and the rest of them are just fine listening to whatever's getting played. Yeah. But okay. we kind of had this unspoken rule that if you don't like something, just say you don't like it and it has to change. Right. And I never was a, Hey, we're going to listen to death metal for the next five hours. You know, we didn't really do that. And since I like a lot of different music, I usually had something that would placate everybody mm-hmm. at some point in the rotation. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. So I had a jam box up uh, sitting on my shelf and it got stolen. Right. Like my sophomore year. Well, the funny thing about it is I found it just sitting on some table like three years later <laughs> in, like, in, in another studio. building. In no, I mean, it was another one of the related architecture school buildings. Interesting. But it wasn't in the building where it was when it got stolen was not the building where I found it. <laughs> and you know what? There was no mixtape. Wow. Somebody had they taken, the, they'd kept the mixtape. They took the gold. Man. <laughs> yeah. That's, unfortunate. That's flattering in a way. I don't know. Maybe they're like, get rid of this garbage. And they put their. <laughs> this deserves to be in the trash. Their death metal. Yeah. We'll keep the jam boxes because that tape's got to go. <laughs> So I was that guy. I always played music. To riff off the like professor participation one, we had a my second year. We had a professor who, instead of going desk to desk, he would have a smaller group in the say we had like fifteen or sixteen people in the studio. He would have a group of four or five get together on a certain day per week, and then you would those smaller groups meet with him and talk about your projects. So you're still kind of presenting what you're doing in front of smaller groups of people, but you also have a professor present, and then he would just kind of review on a table, you know. There was no showing laptops, computer screen kind of things. He would want you to print out what you're doing on some kind of, you know, some drawing so everyone can kind of pass around and comment on it. So that was that was a really, I think that studio for me was the strongest sort of way to sort of I mean, express your iterations and present them directly. So let's roll into the presentation kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's okay. what all kind of builds up towards. That's right. So this is the presenting your work, you know, what we call the pinup process. Yeah. With the exception of maybe one or two presentations per project, mm-hmm. the vast majority of the pinups that we did were in our studio. You know, the way I, you okay. know, at University of Texas, each classroom had pinup space in it. And so yeah. you would pin up your work in your studio, not in a gallery or something down the hall, like, like okay. an end of the semester presentation. Sure, yeah. yeah. And, and these would happen at kind of some not like really clearly defined milestones but the you know the professor will say hey on friday we're going to have a pinup everyone's going to pin up their work and you know that you need to start working towards the material that you want to have to articulate where you're at in your design process Mm -hmm. and this could be made up by drawings it could be and by drawings i mean like nowadays it'd probably be like printed out drawings for us it was hand like straight line like parallel bar type drawings Mm mm-hmm but it also would include sketches. Uh, it would have models that we had made. And it wasn't too often that the professors told us we had to have models. Yeah. But yeah. the culture in the late 80s and early 90s was, I don't think I ever did a project that didn't have a half dozen models at various stages as part of the process of the work I presented. Yeah. Yeah. I think a big part of it is showing your iterative steps to get where you were. We had a professor who outlined exactly what they wanted, like the output. So everyone's 
output was very vanilla. Like it all looked the same. Like we all had to have one floor plan, one section, one model, all in white, which was really odd. <laughs> like it was, I mean, it's a way to like make sure you actually have an output of this sort of like standard caliber, kind of like floor plan sections, elevations, all that kind of thing. I know how to do all those architectural drawings, which was helpful. I think in my like second year when we started doing architectural projects, but it, afterward they kind of you kind of got released to do your own kind of thing, in a in a way for your like later years, I suppose. So you were able to pick what drawings or what expressions best represent your project, because you had to think about not only those drawings but also how you would talk around the drawings and explain your idea. Yeah, as a tool your project, exactly. Yeah, yeah. How were those helpful in communicating your idea? Well, I have a friend of mine who's a professor, mm-hmm. and most recently I sat in one of his juries and as as a juror, and he told me, he goes, I told everybody, like, this is the drawings you need to have, and this is the yeah. format they need to be in. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking at the time when he told me that, that I don't remember that ever being part of any pinup I had when I was in school. Like yeah, the professors never said, you need to have these plans, you need to have X number of sections, you need to have... It. They never did it. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, do I just not remember it? Or are things have just have just gone that way? Was that how it was in your when you went to school? Yeah, I mean, at least my second year we did that, like I was saying. I may have just been my professor who delineated exactly the drawings and, you know, views he wanted to have of your building. But then my third, fourth, and fifth year was kind of up to the person. You should be able, by then you should have figured out, you know, what things would best express your, your building. Well, I think is since this is a survival guide yeah. to architecture school, I think that one of the things that I would want someone who's listening to take away with is you need to, as soon as you know that you're going to be presenting your work, mm-hmm. you have to figure out, well, what do I want to present? Oh, yeah. And then yep. you need to work backwards so that you actually have the things you want to use to help you articulate your work, not just... I work until it's time to pin up and then I take whatever I have and I stick it on the wall. I think that's a big error. And and I'd say, and this is made up, <laughs> this is artificial math, but I bet the vast majority of architecture students, that's what happens, right? Peel things off the desk and yeah, I mean, they they know that they're working on stuff. So they're like, well, I have plans and mm-hmm. I have some elevations because I have to solve these problems. So they're just going to pin up the outputs of the process, whatever they may be, as yeah. opposed to saying, I specifically want to have these things available and on the wall when it's my turn to present yeah you know yeah i think it's about partly kind of like thinking toward the future being able to plan and set those smaller goals because even if it is only like a two-week project you should already be thinking as you start you should be thinking what kind of output you want in the end and then as your ideas develop you can sort of those get funneled into those output for that certain day for the pinup and you have it yeah, you, I mean, you really have to, which is yeah. the thing that I find amusing about it is I don't think architecture students, I mean, just based on the 50 juries that I sat on, mm-hmm. unless the professor tells them what they have to present, there's not a whole lot of evidence to suggest that they plan to have what they had. They just had yeah. it, okay. which is the exact opposite of what it would be like in the real world. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. You absolutely know what you're going to have. And then you look at and go, well, my deadline is next Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So that means I need to work on these things and not work on those things. Yep. I think it's a big deal. And so planning what you want to display helps you be a little bit more efficient with your time, which is a skill set that everybody kind of learns just through the time you spend in architecture school. Mm-hmm. But there seems to be that period of time when you don't know it. And that's when you see all the all-nighters. Yeah. You get to the point where you're kind of spinning your wheels during the day. And then you end up 
oh, I actually have to do work for tomorrow. Yeah. And then you're there all night. Well, some of it's, oh, I'm just having fun, right? Yeah, a lot of goofing around. There's a lot of it's goofing around. As it should. You know, that's part of the camaraderie I think we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Within your studio. That's why you should go to studios so you can, you know, mess around and make friends. <laughs> <laughs> no, th- no, that's not the reason why. That's <laughs> And a, learn a little bit, I guess. That's Yeah. The thing is you go, you should go there because there's a lot of value in the time you spend yeah. up there looking at exactly. what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. The unintended side effect of that is mm-hmm. the rising tide lifts all boat, right? You see what everyone else is doing and it's, it's unlikely that you're going to go, I'm so amazing that I can dial it back because yeah. everyone else is so bad. Okay. Normally yeah. you're going to see work and go, I need to step it up. Yeah. You They're know, killing you, it over there. Yeah. This, I, I might go, wow, Landon's got that model. It's like the craft is better than my model is. And you know, maybe I need to pay a little bit more attention because when the projects are reviewed, they're going to see my work and your work and they might go, what happened here? <laughs> That's where I move my stuff, you know, farther away from that person's. Well, <laughs> don't ever act like you didn't consciously pin up where you pinned up sometimes because of who was to one side or the other. I have done that. Yes. I can think about a moment in particular. Yeah. I'm going to pin it right next to this person because I know. You'll look that great. They're going to go down. Yeah. They're going to down in the fire. Yeah. And you want to be from the ashes, yeah. the phoenix rises. <laughs> uh, yes, Landon again. Okay, so from the perspective of a juror, let me give mm-hmm. you – let's have a little bit of conversation about – like I've been on both sides, right? I've, I've stood in front yeah. of many jurors yeah. making a presentation. And I'll tell you, when I was in school, there was no amount of antiperspirant that I could wipe on my body <laughs> that would deal with the flop sweat that I would get. That's why I wore a lot of black just because of that. Because you're like, oh, yeah, it's I'm it's terrifying, <laughs> you know, and, and it's normal to be nervous. Yeah, that's right? part of it. Like, I I wasn't even thinking about the juror side of things. I was, or anyone else in the studio, I was kind of like, all right, Landon, pull it together. Just say what you need to say and explain your project, get the idea across and, you know, sit down and then doodle for the rest of the time. There's a little bit of that. I don't want to embarrass myself. Yeah. Oh, right. Definitely. And there's a little bit like, if if I really blow this, I'm going to get a bad grade. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you right now, if you blow a presentation, you will not get a bad grade for that reason. You, yeah. Unless the reason you blew it is because you had terrible work. <laughs> and then you will get a bad yeah, yeah, grade. Yeah. But from the juror's standpoint, I'll tell you, there's a couple things that, like, I remember the jurors that were really nasty mm-hmm. and hard. And I had one professor in college. I never heard him say a bad word about anybody. And when he was your juror, you're kind of like, oh, fantastic. Thank God. Right. And I've, I've maintained a relationship with this professor since my school days. Mm-hmm. And he and I have talked about it a few times. And it was, he goes, his goal is to always find something positive to say. Because he thinks that when you elevate the student, you're going to lift them towards doing their best work. As opposed to when you tear them down, you're going to what? Shame or guilt them into doing something yeah. better? And they question anything else they ever do. He doesn't believe that that's the way to work. But there was a story when I was in school, and I'm mm-hmm. hoping I can learn how to beep this out because I, mean, I can't say the word, but I'm going <laughs> to okay. say it, and I'm going to beep it out. We'll figure it out. But everyone pinned the work up, and you know, the everyone's kind of milling around and getting their chairs kind of set up. Mm-hmm. One of the jurors walks in, and he was actually one of the professors in the architecture program. It wasn't like a guest juror. Okay. And he sits down, and he's just kind of scanning the room, and he gets up, like we're about to start, and he doesn't go to the first project. He goes to the one that's like kind of right in front of wherever he is, which is not the order. And he goes, and he just puts his face, he walks over and he goes, let me show you where you f- this up. <laughs> it was like the hardest oh thing God. I've ever seen in my life. 
Now, the truth is, it was a terrible project. There were so many scale problems with it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, she really did. Yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, I don't remember her past that day. I mean, as far as I know, she uh, combusted and disappeared from uh, the planet. I mean, it was really, really bad. Yeah, it's bad. And so I kind of always think about that when I get asked to be a juror and I go, my goal is I'm going to go in, I'm going to be constructive, mm-hmm. I'm going to be positive, and I'm going to tell you things that I think you need to work on. Yeah, I think there's always a kernel of um, an idea somewhere in a project. Someone obviously you know, put a lot of thought into it. And so there's certain positives you can pull and try to extract more from the student maybe. You know, why'd you do this certain thing? This is a really strong part of your project. Maybe you could have expressed it more and then maybe kind of downplay some of their less strong ideas. You know, you could have, this wasn't as strong or as um, pertinent to your idea. So sure. Push this. Well, okay. So here's, here's the advice for that. Okay. Mm-hmm. First off, as a, as a student presenting your work, you got to understand that your jurors bringing baggage to the mix, right? Oh yeah, we talked yeah. about this a little bit. Like if my if sustainability is like my big thing, that's all I'm going to talk. About. I'm going to look and I'm going to say things that you may go, oh, I didn't think about that at all. Which doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. It's just it's a level of criteria that is being applied to your project that is not necessarily what you chose to focus on, right? Yeah. So you got to keep yeah. it and you got to put a little bit of every juror's got some baggage, right? Mm-hmm. So don't don't get too caught up in it. But what I will say is. When you put your work up on the wall, you need to have your big idea represented, right? You know, I'll use the example of a multi-use development and you're going to have this tower, this orienting tower with this great light fixture, you know, kind of light feature as part of it. Mm -hmm. Well, if you have plans for one of the 8 billion multifamily apartments that you have and there's no information really on this orienting light tower, which is your concept, I go, you're going to do a bad job. Yeah. Whatever your big idea is, everything that you put on the wall, every comment you make needs to support the big idea. Mm -hmm. Because if we're talking about your bathroom layout, right, if that's the positive thing I'm trying to latch onto. There's nothing else to talk about. (laughs) There's nothing else to talk about. And that's a bad thing, right? You need to have your big idea represented and everything needs to support the big idea. And when you're putting all your work up on the wall, if it doesn't support the big idea, get rid of it. Yeah, I remember... um... In my fifth year, which was sort of a year-long thesis project, a lot of times I like to show, you know, obviously the iterations, how I got to the process I'd done. So I was basically trying to put everything I had done on the wall, and you only have, you have a limited amount of space to display it down in the lobby. And uh, my professor's like, why do you have this drawing, this X drawing, this Y drawing? I was like, oh, that was just part of the thing when the very beginning, why I put it there. And he's like, it doesn't support your idea that you came to, so... It needs to remove the wall because someone's going to point it out and someone's going to make a comment about it and it has nothing to do with what you're talking about. Yeah. And you're going to go down a rabbit hole. That's exactly. not the point of where you want the conversation to go. Yeah. So, yeah, if it's on the wall, it's fair game. Yep. Um, I would say almost all, all architecture students, not all, but almost all of them generate a lot of work as a result of this mm-hmm. creative process. Which Drawings, thing, sketches, yeah. renderings, models. I mean, you name it. And there is that natural temptation to put it all on the wall. Mm-hmm. it's almost as if they're trying to prove that they're a good student because look how much work I did. <laughs> look right? at all these drawings I made. I'm amazing. I have so much work here to show just how amazing I am. Yeah. <laughs> but the truth is, is it doesn't work that way. You need to resist the urge to put that work on display because like we said, if it doesn't tie into your big idea, what the concept is, mm-hmm. it's a distraction from the conversation. Yeah. It's a matter of trimming the fat a little bit. Yeah. Pulling down your repertoire of things. Well, I also think that as you're working towards that, deadline that pin up date when the professor says mm-hmm. on this time we're going to pin up our work as you're working towards that time i got to tell you last minute changes 
do way more harm than they are good. <laughs> and nobody else seems to, yeah. you, you don't really get that until either it's too late or you don't benefit from the fact that, like I was in school for, say I had five years worth of architecture studio. Mm -hmm. You know, that light bulb went off, you know, I don't know, halfway through, three fifths of the way through. Yeah. So the first couple of years, that wasn't something that was on my radar screen. Yeah, something you had to learn for yourself, I guess. Yeah. And you're like, oh my God, I need to make this change. And you kind of like blow up everything. Mm -hmm. And and it goes back to the, if we're talking about your bathrooms, you really shouldn't be talking about something that's so super minute yeah. of a detail that you could actually get it done in a small amount of time. But I've seen students where they like totally redo their concept really, really close to the deadline. You know, that friend of mine that's down at Texas A&M. Yeah. After I do, I've done a couple juries for him. We'd go out and uh, have a beer and he'd say, so what do you think? And I'd say, well, I thought these students were really good. These ones were, I don't know. I don't even know how they're in school. Some of the stuff you see, yeah. I go, I don't know what happened here. And almost in a defensive way, he'd say, I don't know what happened there either. Because when I met with them two days ago, none of that, it was what they had. So that tells me that two days before they had this end of the year kind of pinup, they changed everything. And so I'm up there going, well, we can't talk about your big idea because there's nothing here to talk about. Yeah. Or there's like 20 different ideas going on. You haven't picked one to yeah. stick with. Yeah. I think that's a huge problem. The other thing that I should point out is the juror isn't always right. And I'm not just talking about the idea that they have their little pet issues that they want to get into. Mm -hmm. But it's the it's the idea that as a juror, I know your project inch deep, five miles wide. You know, yep. Just what the professor might, if they were organized, they sent me some information like the night before I go down there to sit on the panel. Yeah. And this is a project that you've been working on for weeks, if not months. You know this project way better than I do, right? The level at which I can get into it's pretty high level. You know, we're going to be talking concepts mm -hmm. and I'll see really elaborate floor plans. I don't have the time to get into and look at every bathroom layout and yeah it's like yeah. wow that's a you shouldn't put the janitor's closet right next to the ceo's office i mean yeah. i mean you shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> fyi that's right fyi you shouldn't do that but what i will say is that the jurors they're going to focus on the big things not the little things and as a result they're going to miss out on all the little nuances that for you the student who's putting the work up in your mind, take your project from being great to being spectacular, right? Yeah. All these little nuanced things. And it does contribute to the end product, but the juror's not going to get it, right? Yeah, they'll latch on to those kind of things, but hopefully your professor has been with you through the process and the person actually giving you the grade knows what you know, the ideas that are expressed in your project. They should. Yeah. That's the idea. So it's kind of take the juror's comments with a grain of salt. Hopefully they have something you know valuable maybe for future projects. Well, that's, that's the takeaway. So if you're yeah. that student and that, that juror comes up and just crucifies your, your job and what mm -hmm. you've done and what you poured your heart and soul into, yep. don't let that wreck you, right? Because they don't know everything that's happened. They don't know the project as good as you do. And they're not the one who's giving you your grade, yeah. right? Your teacher knows what you've done, which is actually a kind of a, a kind of really nice star to put on the end of the conversation. And that is hard work is easy to see. You're not fooling anybody on what you've done or what you haven't done. The evidence of your efforts are very easy to see for someone who's been in this business for just a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to spot a sham <laughs> in a way. Yeah. There are going to be people in their studio that are like that. They just sort of make a bunch of stuff. And maybe they actually honestly think it's sort of beneficial. But sometimes it's putting the hard work in, you know, iterating your project. 
and then it will show in your end product. We had a guy, I don't know his name. He had, he was he went to UT yeah. and he had gone on like a work program. And so he was there for like five years at this office. Like he got a job and it just stayed there. And finally they're like, you need to go finish. Okay. So he only had like one semester of studio left. Wow. Right. Okay. So he finally came back. And in that last semester, he was in my class. Yeah. I'll give the guy some credit. He cranked out some like amazing work. Amazing. Mm-hmm. But none of it actually worked. Interesting. So what happened is we're, you know, again, we know how much everyone is working because everybody works up at studio. Mm-hmm. Right. This is the 1300s. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all at our desk and we're working. And this, that guy's never there. He's never there. And so about a week and a half or a week before the big pinup, he shows up to studio and he he works like people who have worked in an office work. He showed up, he put on headphones, put his head down, and he just cranked. There was no goofing off. There was no going out for coffee. <laughs> he didn't talk to anyone. He didn't wander over to see how your project's coming along. Yeah. He just made stuff. And his drawings were spectacularly good. <laughs> I mean, they were so good. We We would... We hated him yeah. for so many reasons. Part of the reason was because it was so good. Yeah. Right. Okay. We're killing ourselves over here. All semester. And he's destroying all of us. It's so much better. Mm-hmm. But then all of a sudden you, you go beyond that. Wow, that looks great. And you start looking at it and you start realizing, well, that doesn't work. And that doesn't work. Yeah. And what is that? That's not even part of the. And you can start pulling like everything apart. Hmm. And the thing was. Is you look at it and you go, okay, it's superficial. Like my my project works. I don't have these like programming gaps that he has. Yeah. And so when everybody pins up their work, all the gestures just like moths to the flame go to his work and it's like, oh, Whoa. another level. <laughs> and but the professor of that class, I think he, if if it weren't the last one he needed to be gone, he said he told me because I would have failed him. Because yeah. he goes, it was a bad project. It looked great, but it just, the work wasn't there. Mm-hmm. The ability to draw well was there. And okay, he goes, yeah. and this is not a drawing class. Yeah. Right. Okay. And I, I like took that information. I was like, like my faith in the, in the system, <laughs> the system was restored. It yeah. It's, it's pretty obvious. Yeah. I think to anyone who knows what they're doing, I think it's obvious. I think you probably fool your grandma, but you're not going to fool your professor. <laughs> Unless your grandma is an architect. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Okay, so we know hard work's easy to see. The mm-hmm. other thing that I would suggest, and this is funny for me to bring, I'm thinking about it now, even though I think it's important to put in here, is break the rules. Yeah, that's, that's kind of like an architect's credo. Yeah. Be a rule breaker. Even though I just totally bagged on the guy that broke like all the rules. <laughs> Those are, yeah, well. It's not the same thing, though. Yeah, not the same thing. Not the same thing. But the, when I talk about breaking the rules now, it, well, it's kind of related to the big concept, right? Your big idea. Because they don't really – the professors don't care. Like like sometimes I sit on these juries and the project that these students are giving is really huge. It's really complicated and they've got – like one of the projects I sat on, they had to do a police station. Uh, it was like a court building. It was the administrative office for all the city services. Okay. It was like three completely complicated projects in and of themselves, but it was one massive compound. All right. Right. And I go, wow, that's a really complicated project. Yeah, I mean, there's like a, a jillion bit. moving parts to it. And so what happens is some of the students, rightfully so, got bogged down in the, well, I'm supposed to have 
this many desks and I need to be able to make sure that you can't walk from here to there because it's a security point. Mm-hmm. Right. They're really getting into how do I make it? Cause it was a real project yeah, and a function, but it was like a real world project that, that the professor had taken and given his students. Mm-hmm. And so there's lots of things they can learn from it. But what happened is you had a huge chunk of the students like getting lost in the minutia of, I need to make sure there's 17 bathrooms, right. Yeah. Or whatever the case yeah, may yeah. be. And at the end, you're like, well, you don't have an idea. You just have like a functioning plan, right? Like, what's the idea, mm-hmm. right? So when we talk about breaking the rules, what in my mind is breaking the rules means who cares about the program? Go for the idea. Like, get your concept out there. That's yeah. the thing that we should be talking about. Yeah, because I think hopefully what you learn in school is that a project, whether big or small, you know, whether you're designing a, a stool or designing, a, like you were saying, like a multifunctional facility complex in a way. They all centralize like around an idea and then the functionality of course is inherent in that thing. But the expression architecturally should be an idea and that hopefully is a big takeaway, I think, from school. It should be. Yeah. Right. Okay. So the other thing that, that I think is kind of interesting, I took a uh, woodshop class when I was in You had a class. Oh. It was actually a class. And I made a chair. I don't think I have evidence of this chair anywhere. Because <laughs> it's I'm, broken already. Oh, my. No, it would never break. It is the <laughs> most. The chair weighs like 8,000 pounds. Oh, God. It's it's The whole thing is made out of like inch and a half thick slabs of maple that I glued up. It, okay. It is the heaviest chair ever. Yeah. I actually had a friend of mine who, who got drunk and ran into it, and it scooped a giant chunk of meat oh, out of his leg. No way. <laughs> and it left it like a. I never finished it. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I completed it. Okay. I mean, like I didn't put finish on it. Yeah. So it was okay. kind of this natural wood, which I thought I, I really liked. Right. Yeah. And so over time, maple, you know, UV's hitting it, but where that guy's like knee jammed into it, it made like a dark spot. Ooh. <laughs> so for like ten years, I had this chair, and I was like, yeah, that's where his knee like got ripped <laughs> open right there. <laughs> but we had this really nice. It was huge. This huge wood shop. Wood shop. Yeah. And I always look at it now and I think I didn't take advantage of some of the resources that the university had to offer me oh, as yeah. far as a creative process. Mm-hmm. Like, like, why didn't I make, you know, we talked about a couple episodes ago that I took a pottery class. Well, how come I didn't do any, you know, I could have made models or things out of clay and fired it. That would have yeah. been cool. Yeah, I remember that I took a pottery class and she basically said at the beginning, you can come here anytime you want, use as much clay as you want. You paid for the class. But I just, I literally just made the almost minimum required pottery. I, f- I feel bad for it, but yeah, I mean, I was doing my studio. Your parents should maybe. feel bad because they're the ones who paid for the class. Yeah. I mean, it, I could have gotten a lot more out of it. But yeah. Talking about wood shop, like they, they like almost forced you to make something in the wood shop your first year, just so you can get, you know, get attuned to making something physical because that in the end when architecture is, you know, you're going to be making physical things right? and get away from the computer, all that kind of thing, which I think was great. But I didn't, I don't think I used the wood shop as much as I could have. That and the, we had a giant metal shop too. I'm sure UT had the same thing. It's like all these different little shops, like ceramic studio, wood shop, metal shop. We even had a fabric shop. Really? I think it was mostly for like the industrial design studio and interior design. They sort of had almost ex- not exclusive rights to it, but they a lot of their classes centered around it. So I didn't use that one a lot. See, they had you know the laser cutter like buried in the wood shop somewhere. But hopefully, you stay away from that thing. Get away from it. I actually got an email from somebody the other day that said, I really like building models, but is it not okay if I use the laser cutter? It's just a tool. Yeah. And, I, and I went, it's okay, mm-hmm. right? Because 
I, I really almost said, no, it's not okay. Get off my lawn. I'm keeping it. I'm keeping this. <laughs> but I went, no, it's the process. It's the output because I think the value of models has to do with as a, as a finished thing that you can pick it up and look around and people that don't think th- three-dimensionally mm-hmm. can have a better understanding of it. So I go, for the way that I appreciate models, whether you're cutting it out using an X-Acto knife or you're using a laser cutter to print it out, I don't care mm-hmm. for me. But I will tell you, of the 500 portfolios that I look at every single year, the ones that stand out at me are the ones that include things that they made. Oh, you yeah. Know, like even Danielle in our office. Mm-hmm. She has like these like printed like light fixtures that she made. Yeah. Uh, you know, was, I think it was part of a, you know, it was like on Rhino and they had to, you know, make the, you know, they designed the shapes and then oh, they, okay. they're awesome. And they stood out to me. Whenever anybody has physical manifestations of the creative process, not just drawings, but when they have things that they made, whether it be ceramics, whether it be plastic, whether it be cast and concrete, whether it be mm-hmm. made out of wood, yep. that jumps out at me because it tells me that that person makes like 3D is a part of their world. Yeah. Not just their imagination, but like they want to make it. I love that. Yeah. That tells me something about that person that their portfolio would never share with me. Yeah. You want to, you have a desire to create something physical. Yeah. You know, use medium and learn what you can about materials and design it, essentially. Design your actual physical world yeah. rather than all being built into the computer. That's right. Which is, that, that's a huge difference between Bob in college versus Landon in college. Mm-hmm. Nobody had the choice of doing it in the computer. Yeah. I think it, I think nowadays it's more of a, you have to make a choice about deciding, you know, how much you're going to do in one or the other because you have both of those things jamming together in one world. And so you kind of have to eke out your own little way through it. How you design. Okay, so did your professors, did, did anyone ever talk about or give you any kind of guidance on how you find that balance between building things and making things versus drawing things physically versus doing them on the computer and printing them out? I guess in a way, it was more inferred. Like Virginia Tech, a lot of professors always wanted you to make things or print out drawings or do hand drawings. If you did it by hand and showed your sort of iteration things, it was appreciated more than trying to show your professor sort of like computer model like trying to show your laptop they like totally shied away from that they wanted you you know if you had some like view you printed it out on a page and physically presented it rather than you know like no one presented a slideshow of their presentation it was always physical medium pinned on the wall or hung on the wall or whatever this is what 50 year old bob would go tell 18 year old bob is you know Put a lot of time, effort, energy into your work, but don't waste it on things that don't matter. Don't waste it on things that aren't the concept. Don't waste on the things that don't support the big idea, mm-hmm. right? Pay attention to what other people are doing, but don't let that be the thing that motivates you towards your own greatness, right? Because yeah. yeah, yeah. the best work I ever did was when I stopped caring about what other people were doing, and I just did what I did. I'll say one more thing before we get to the my favorite part of the episode was go visit your professor in their office hours. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing. I that's th- that's something I didn't learn really until like my fourth year or not my fourth year, my fifth year. So my last year in school, that thesis project. So we had one professor like dedicated to us to like help us with the thesis. And I got so much resources just like talking with my professor one on one. Like he would give me uh there was a book. My my project centered around sort of like community that kind of like changed over time is sort of like developed community i've seen it 
and it's it was it was amazing. <laughs> but he he gave me this this book. It's a modern day fishing village. Yeah, it was of. like a village of these like pilotes kind of like expanded into the. It was it was awesome. I should put a or at least a plan, I guess, of it. Send me some stuff. We'll put it in the show yeah, notes. It was yeah. Really cool. But the idea was about this sort of growing and form changing object. So he, this book from a I think he's really an anthropologist. So the the book's titled On Growth and Form. Darcy Thompson and it goes into a bunch of like it's a really long book I wouldn't read it all but and it sort of talks about how like skeletons are formed and different natural processes that form that thing um, and so it's an understanding about the forces of nature rather than some like abstract and you got that because you went and visited your yeah. professor yeah and he just sort of recommended it for like further development of my ideas because he he's a very well-read person so it was sort of you know it, why not go to them? They, they've they done this a lot. So Well, I think that, you know, in your example, he was doing his job, right? Because mm-hmm. he was your professor. Yeah. The thing that I would tell people, the reason why I think you need to go talk to your professors, and it may sound like I'm I'm telling you to go brown nose your professors, which I'm not doing. I'm not doing this. No, yeah. But, you know, my mom was a teacher. Mm-hmm. And she used to say things to me that, like, she knew the students that cared. And she's invested in these students doing well. Teachers don't want you to fail. They want you to succeed. And if you come to them and you say, hey, how are you? Could you help me with this? You know, they have office hours. And I learned in college that most, you know, they're required to keep office hours. And half the time, nobody ever goes and sees them. (laughs) At least not in the architecture school, right? They're just alone in their rooms. They're just crying. Waiting for someone to come talk with them. Anybody. And so I would go in there and I would ask questions and I'd make some small talk. Can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? And I would find that they would... They would really like custom present the lecture to me as an individual. Mm -hmm. And now they bought into my success as a student and that paid dividends down the road. Yeah. But that's not the intention. Like you're not there to brown nose or you're not there to get better grade or, you know, slither your way into speak for yourself. Being, (laughs) (laughs) you know, the intention is that they're able to, instead of giving their like everyday spiel in the lecture, they're, can further elaborate on things they can't fit in that hour and a half. Yeah, that's custom made for you. Exactly. You're not getting the lowest common denominator presentation that they give in mm-hmm. class. You're giving you're getting that presentation that tailor made to the things that you need or where your interests lie or the things you're struggling in. Yep. And I found that, you know, it seems intimidating to go talk to your professors. But I'm telling you, they love it. They're invested. They oh, yeah. want you to do this. They want you to do well. And this mm-hmm. is the this is the forum that allows them to take that extra step along with you. Your extra step is going there. Their extra step is actually providing the guidance once you actually get there. Yeah. And not enough students take advantage of it. Oh yeah. Right. Landon. We know what time it is. <laughs> it's spare time. In your spare time. In your spare time. <laughs> so what are you doing in your spare time? Well, uh I haven't been doing much lately, but I have uh been very intrigued by these scooters that have recently appeared around Dallas. Yes. They're everywhere now. They're absolutely everywhere, and it looks awesome. That's what I want to say. They look amazing. I haven't actually been on one yet, yeah. so they look kind of dangerous. I have read that there's been some pretty bad wrecks. Oh, really? Because they go, f- well, I if it's the same ones, they're, they look yeah, like, yeah. they're like motorized Razor scooters. Yeah, they're amazing. About two years ago, Dallas got flooded with bikes, so all these like rentable bikes you can you know, line bike, Ofo, and whoever else. Right. Um, basically, just dump bikes everywhere. But now the new thing is these. You know, obviously those are human powered. You have to actually pedal and you know sweat a little bit, which no one wants to do that. 
But then I saw this guy, you yeah, know, not when it's a hundred. Yeah, especially not when it's a hundred degrees outside. So this new the summer fad is these scooters that are motorized. So we, me and Rachel were going out to eat downtown. I saw this guy in a suit just like zipping by at twenty miles an hour, going to his meeting or okay. something. They don't go twenty miles an hour. They were going pretty fast. There was well, they look like it. Fast. Well, because I just got through reading about it actually. Oh, okay. And yeah. um, they have the ability, but they get they get rate limited to around 11, 12 miles an hour. Okay. That's still pretty fast. Still pretty fast. Yeah. And I was just down in Austin and they have them as well. Okay. And I saw some people zipping around. Yeah. I'm sure it's like all over the United States. I don't think it's isolated to Dallas and Austin, but obviously like urban centers are going to have them. I'll tell you what I like and what I don't like about them. Mm -hmm. What I don't, I'll start with what I don't like first is they seem dangerous. Yes. (laughs) But it's not, I don't worry about the, if you decide to get on one, I'm not going to go. Oh, Landon, those seem dangerous. I don't care. You're right? taking the risk. You're a grown yeah. man. Yeah, I'm not worried about it. What I'm worried about is that the people I see zooming on them, they're not like in the road. They're like zooming down sidewalks and, you know, in between yeah. people who are just walking. Scrolling along. Yeah. And I go, last thing I want is to get hit by a 220-pound businessman going 12 <laughs> miles an hour. Yeah, I can right? see the downside. So I, I worry about that because I think that they just kind of show up. And there's like there's no etiquette in place no, yet. Yeah, no one's planned around it. There's no like structure around it. Like there aren't places to dock the scooters or at least they're not just not like, like flopped over like the bikes were. Yeah, they didn't have bikes weren't piled. They were piled in the middle of the street. Basically. Yeah, it was a mess. It became an eyesore. Dangerous. But I'll, here's what I love about them. I love that they're small. They're compact. They're getting rid of parking. They're mm-hmm. getting rid of vehicles. They're lowering because yeah. they're all electric. They're not contributing. Well, the batteries. Yeah. Make, let's not get it's into the, like the making of the batteries. Exhaust but, theory. Yeah. All these electric vehicles are still kind of, you know. But when it's 100 uh, degrees outside, you know, and you're like, I could walk, but that's going to be a 25-minute walk each mm-hmm. way, 50 minutes. I'm going to sweat through all my clothes. Yeah. I can't do it. Or I'm going to drive. Well, now you hop on a scooter. You're there in five minutes, and it was kind of fun. Yeah. We were actually, we were joking. Last night we went out, we went to Uptown and meet a friend, and we were joking like, oh, we'll just take, we won't take an Uber or Lyft home. We'll just like take a scooter home, and it's only like. I think it's only like six or seven miles from where we are from uptown. And I was like, that would only take, you know, like less than an hour. Like it obviously could, it would, it would have been an awesome like afternoon activity. Is this after you've scooter, been having your Capri Sun maybe cocktails? Yeah, we were waiting. Okay. <laughs> so we were waiting on the lift to come pick us up and I was trying to download the app real quick and like get it downloaded and then hop on the scooter. And I was going to give it like, you know, 30 yards and come back. You just were channeling your Marty McFly. Yeah. Rachel didn't like it. She's like, Landon, get off that thing. Lift is coming. I'm like, I gotta get on it. So I haven't, I haven't ridden one yet. That's my. Uh, but you're gonna. Yeah, that's my um, challenge for the next two weeks. So then I'll report back the next podcast. All right, how it goes. All right, we're gonna wait for breaking news from Landon. Breaking news. Bro- Landon breaks his legs. That's news. the news I don't want broke. <laughs> yeah, don't break that news. Okay, well, hopefully that didn't happen. So Bob. Yes. What? <laughs> what are you doing in your spare time? Funny that you should ask. Whoa. <laughs> okay, so. As I was thinking about this, I got a little depressed. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not good. <laughs> well, it's a depressing question in the sense that I haven't been doing anything in my spare time because <laughs> I haven't really had any spare time. Oh. Well, okay. I mean, you know. Yeah. It's probably why you don't have a good answer either. It's <laughs> <laughs> because we're really, really busy at the office. Oh, yeah. Unlike you, who apparently still has time to go out and have Capri Sun cocktails during the week with their girlfriend, I don't. Right. And so I've been sleeping. Like if I have the chance <laughs> to sleep, I'd do it. Yeah. You know, like I didn't get home till after uh, 1230 uh, two nights ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's it's really been crazy. Oh, yeah. 
But what I have been doing with all my downtime working is I listen to a lot of music and audiobooks on okay. tape, even though they're not on tape anymore. Like sci-fi books? Well, all, I list all kinds of books. Okay. Yeah. Um, because it really started – so I'll tell you this. So I use a service, a music listening service called Napster, which uh, used to be Rhapsody. Oh, yes. And then they changed the name. They rebranded a couple years ago. And Rhapsody was one of the very first ones. And I think I pay somewhere in the neighborhood of like $10 a month on average. And I get literally every song I want mm-hmm. for free with no ads. I can download them, which means yeah. I don't have to be connected and I can still listen to it. Because I easily would have spent more than $120. My Now, my entertainment budget's not huge, but the idea that I would spend $120 a year buying music is not yeah. outside the realm of possibility back when there were CDs, mm-hmm. right? And now I don't have to do that anymore, right? So I love it. I listen to music probably four to six hours every single day. But I also listen to a lot of books on tape, which aren't on tape anymore. I don't know what to call them. <laughs> books in the cloud. Books on binary. I, yeah, who knows? <laughs> Well, it really started because my daughter was reading some of these books, and I don't have the – and they're huge. Like, she was reading – I'm trying to think of the, the first one. It was Aragon. Aragon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Those are – By Christopher Paolini. That's the one that started. Okay. And they're huge books. I mean, they are really, really Massive. big books. You use them to weigh down your models when you're building them I can, like, weigh down the roof of my house. <laughs> and so, I was doing a lot of traveling at the time mm-hmm. and in the car, right? Because I can't – I can read on a plane, but I can't read while I'm driving. And this is yes. when I was going up to Wisconsin. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I've got like 10 hours in the car. Mm-hmm. I'll get these books on tape. And then I'll listen to the ones that my, my daughter's reading. And then we can talk about them. That was a way for us to connect. Yeah. Okay. And so I really started getting into books on tape. So I probably go through about 10 books on tape every single month, which when you buy them one at a time is really stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then you have them nicely in your library. So I, well, up. Yeah. On my phone. Yeah. They're not, they're, they're not in my library. <laughs> So I subscribe to Amazon Audible, which mm-hmm. is an, another Amazon. They're buying everything, which is a really good deal. So I think that subscription's fifteen dollars a month. Really? Yeah, and I can listen to as many books as I want. Mm. Which let me tell you, for me, that's an easy fifteen dollars for me to spend. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. And if you don't do it, I'd say you should do it. I mean, I like buying pretty books for my library, and I buy architecture books, and I want to look at the pictures and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um. But I listen, I, you know, I want to read books, but I just don't have the time. So I do it when I'm in the car. I'm a captured audience member, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So sometimes it takes me a while to get through it because maybe I only get to listen about an hour a day. I can't work and listen to books on tape. Yeah, I cannot see myself. I can only listen to music. Either I would be really good at working or really good at listening to them. Yeah, it might be when I'm running or it might be when I'm driving yeah. or when I'm sitting at the airport or on a, you know, whatever. That's normally when I when I do these. But Tony. That's what I've been doing in my spare time is listening to music a lot mm-hmm. and listening to books a lot. Cool. So I'm going to call that a wrap. Thank you for being with us for Episode 7, Back to Architecture School, A Survivor's Guide. If you like this episode, please be sure to head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast so you can get the latest and greatest new episodes automatically downloaded to your podcast player of choice. If iTunes isn't your player of choice, we're also on Google Play, TunedIn, Android, Spotify, and a bunch more, and you're good to go. I would also encourage you to go to iTunes and leave us a five-star Diamond Jubilee rating. <laughs> Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this episode. It'll be educational. 
Be sure to stick around until the very end where we will treat you with some outro tape that I didn't want to delete, but I couldn't put it in the main body of the article. So thanks for tuning in. Heads down and get back to work. And stay frosty. I'm giving Neural's wisdom or uh, Colonel's wisdom. Nernals. Colonel Colonel's. You said Nernals. <laughs> Word of the day. Nernals. Colonels. No. Nernals. What about Ariopinop? You just made that word up. I didn't make that word up. You just say made alien noises with your mouth. Can you say the word I just said? What word did I say? Ariopinop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's a left-handed guitar player, which okay. is kind of cool. I'm left-handed. It's him and Paul McCartney and me. It's a nice, wow. it's a nice <laughs> just trifecta. Trio. Just the three of us. I don't even play the guitar. But if I did. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be left-handed guitar I'd be, player. I'd play with my left hand. I need fresh blood. Oh, it's a cool song. Only served in industrial size glasses. <laughs> what are industrial size glasses? Like really big ones <laughs> made out of metal. Nice. <laughs> made out of pipes. <laughs>